Have you ever dreamed of living on a paradise island? That's exactly what Yvonne Campbell will be doing for a whole year. Otherworld Travel presents Life in Barbados, a year on a paradise island. Thank you for being a regular listener and subscriber or follower of this show. I wanted to offer you this bonus episode of Life in Barbados, featuring the full-length versions of the conversations I had in this week's episode Barbara Triofteen, a local Bayesian woman who attended university and worked in Canada and returned to Barbados several years ago to focus on giving back to the local community. So welcome, Barbara, and thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, Yvonne. It is such a pleasure to meet you and welcome to Barbados. Oh, thank you very much. Now, you are well known for your charity work and I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about how you have brought your two worlds of Barbados and Canada into one passion to make a difference in the lives of others. I'd like to, just to set context, what really drives me is making a difference, making a difference in the lives of others in whatever way I can. And, you know, when you think about it, some do it on a small scale, some people do it on a big scale. So in, in terms of myself, I'm here to do what I can do for other people. And I've been so thankful that I've had so many opportunities presented to me, both here in Barbados and then I actually went to Canada. So you can hear a bit of a funny accent coming through. So I went to Canada to study and really where I found that I gravitated to in terms of my circle and friends was right into the Barbados uh, diaspora. So we have actually in Canada, it's around 37,000. Barbadians overall. And when I first went to Canada, I remember feeling like a tremendous culture shock until I discovered that there were a lot of people like me around, especially in the area that I was more in the Toronto area, and people who are very driven as well to making a difference. So so I would have shared with you, I've mentioned the book on rum and salt fish, and I'll tell you a little bit of a story about that one. But we put that book together. So when I say we, a charity in Canada, the Caribbean Event Family and the Grant Morris Foundation, so Dr. Grant Morris. So we put that book together and I'm the, call it, grand title, you know, editor-in-chief uh, for that. But really what we wanted to focus on was, call it national consciousness, the Barbadian national consciousness, and then the impact of Barbadians in Canada in terms of what they have brought to the country. So when you hear the term beyond rum and salt fish, that was the original trade between Canada and Barbados. So we gave them rum, they gave us salt fish. So some people may not think that to be the best of deals, but anyway, that was the trade deal at the time. So, but some of the ways in which we have really stood out. So for example, Bajans who've gone to Canada, Alan Emptage. So the first search engine was actually discovered or put together, developed by a Barbadian. It was called Archie. Then we've got Dr. Daniel. So the Kaiso gene. So this is a gene that's specific to call it the cancer or cancer research. So you know, the protein sticks onto the DNA and can actually impact it one way or the other, where it becomes a tumor or not. And so she has developed that. So Juliet Daniel, that we've got top woodbine jockeys. And then interestingly, you know, going back into the 50s, a gentleman called Donald Moore came from Barbados to Canada. And he actually marched on Ottawa, Parliament Hill, and he 
he was actually instrumental in changing the immigration laws in Canada, which were not, uh, call it, friendly to sure. as many multiracial and multicultural and multinational groups. And so it was his sort of got a focus to do that. So by means of these little stories and vignettes, I'm sharing that it's a thing in Beijing to want to really contribute and to make a difference. So uh, in terms of the charitable work in Canada, we have, you can imagine, with 37,000 Bajans in Canada, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of parties, a lot of liming, but also a huge focus on raising funds to give back. And I would say the two main streams that we have focused on in Canada uh, have been health and education. So there's been a huge focus on ensuring that youth of Caribbean and Barbadian heritage have opportunities, scholarship opportunities. And we look not just for academic standing, but we look at what is the whole person like? What have they already done to start to give back to the country? And then, you know, how are they developing themselves also as a person? So it's more of what they call now the holistic approach. But one organization that I've been associated with, the Barbados Canada Foundation, has done over 100 different scholarships. They have also focused on health care. Two years ago, we, and I was down here, so I represented them down here, donated eight Doppler machines, ultrasound machines, to Queen Elizabeth Hospital for the neonatal unit. So that's a sort of a dual focus. The Caribbean event uh, family as well, the Grant Morris Foundation, and I'm a scholarship patron with them. They've done over 166 scholarships. And again, the focus is let's help build our youth to become contributing members of society. Right now, actually, the foundation has got a huge focus on supporting the COVID-19 relief and recovery program down here that's headed up by Chairman Andrew Malalu. And so they're fundraising in the diaspora in order to support this program here back home. So you can see that there's a pattern. The umbilical cord is uh, not necessarily uh, totally cut, but there's a strong passion and a desire to give back to um, Barbados. A couple of other organizations that really merit calling out would be you know, like Barbados Ambassadors, Barbados Canada Association. You know, there are numerous. We have a Barbados Nurses Association, Barbados Ex-Police, and then, of course, all the schools. So you might be familiar with this as well from your background. It's the, you know, the HCQC. So Harrison College, Queens College. We all call it Foundation, Comair, St. Michael's, you know, really robust emphasis on the collectivity, where we came from, and how we can maintain that as a cultural emphasis in, in the new country in Canada. So I was just wondering, in terms of your fundraising in Canada, is that just with kind of the diaspora of Barbados or do you go out to the wider, wider communities there to fundraise? So we do go out to the wider communities. So our big signature event was the Barbados Ball Canada Aid. So that was a major fundraising event that we used to host. And all the major banks would come out and support that. So CIBC, RBC, among others, as well as there's an organization called Depot Coindra, if I've got that right. 
and maybe I'll spell it at the end, but they've been a great supporter as well. So external to our group, but um, very much also focused on our group as well, because we've had many Barbadians go to Canada being very successful and passionate about giving back in whatever way uh, they can. Also, the University of Ontario Technical University or Technology University, OTU, and so they, again, you know, have, in terms of the Caribbean event family and the fundraising that's done to support students going there, they've actually put a huge emphasis on really partnering and helping us get to the next level. The time that I have been here, I've come across a lot of Canadians who come here regularly to holiday and things like that. So I was wondering, do you tap into those who love Barbados back in Canada, you know, the kind of the regular visitors here, and can they get involved in some of your fundraising activities? Right. So we actually, down here, we have the Canadian Women's Fund or group, Canadian Women's Association. There's also a UK one and uh, American one as well. But they have been actually tremendous in terms of rallying together with a major fundraising event that they have golf down here pre-COVID, and actually supporting charities down here. And we have over a thousand different charities here in Barbados. Yes. So the third sector really fills a need here in Barbados for very specialized, for very sort of specialized support of, of the country. So for example, gentleman Peter Booz, Peter and Jan Booz Foundation, he's actually been instrumental in putting together a group called Aspire, which actually uh, works to accredit the charities down here to in terms of becoming efficient in terms of their fundraising, reporting requirements, operations, administration, etc very strong organization all called Aspire, and they have cohorts every year. Having said that, when we look at the Substance Abuse Foundation, and this, I'm on the board of the foundation, we actually have benefactors from abroad, so the UK. We've been actually very blessed for a major benefactor out of the UK, a couple of them, and then a number of other basically corporate Barbados down here. But also in Canada, the diaspora, the Barbadian diaspora, has also been able to support us. They either send barrels of food down or specifically donate to certain events. I'll speak a, a little bit about the foundation because it has, you know, sometimes there's a stigma about substance abuse and it's sometimes easy to default to, well, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> Think of the damaging you're, you know, you're doing to other people. But so there is that stigma that's associated uh, with it. Having said that, we have, you know, a very sort of call it expert board. So we have a neuropsychologist on board. We have one of the psychiatrists from the psychiatric hospital and plus, you know, a number of other people from other sort of very accredited organizations from the legal side as well as the uh, accounting side. But in terms of the programs, the first program, the primary program is all about helping people get back on their feet. But biggest thing, because a lot of our people have come through, our clients have come through the drug treatment court. So it's a matter of how do you help them become contributing citizens again? So there are a number of micro-businesses. There's a farm, a bakery. All the farm buildings have been equipped with renewable energy, so photo photovoltaic uh, panels. 
And when that was done, so that generates revenue for the organization. But in addition to that, what's one of the key pieces with that is that we were able to get 24 clients actually trained on installing photovoltaic systems. So they can now actually go out and be hired for work. So really solid. So this is all about how do you help people get back on their feet? There are tough breaks in life, you know, as part of its awareness around what truly does substance abuse represent in terms of a mental disease that has underpinnings in trauma of various sorts. But then the other piece is how do you help people move forward and start again to contribute, you know, and stand on their own two feet and give back to society as well. Fantastic. I really love that idea. And I think the back in the UK from my previous experience of working in and around that area is that, you know, support is often given at the time of crisis and then there's nothing. And actually that's where relapse can happen a lot of the time. So that ongoing support and help and thinking about uh, kind of when, you know, kind of life gets back to somewhat kind of normal after treatment's finished, how can that be a bit more kind of structured, focused and kind of supportive for those people who have kind of struggled with substance misuse. So that's fantastic work you're doing that. That sounds amazing. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The other, I, I mentioned the horse charity as well, so my, my friend Monique Archer, and I'm sure she'll tell you lots about that when you have an opportunity to chat with her, but really looking at equine therapy, but also again, um, focused on helping uh, youth learn to ride properly so that they can make a career in the horse world. And we have had jockeys come out of that who have won the Gold Cup here in Barbados, who've gone to Canada and been outstanding at, in terms of wins at mine and also the, the U.S. as well. So really sort of helping, again, the youth find a future. And then, again, it's working with working with the horses and making sure that they're rehabilitated and that, that they have a good, solid, you know, well-cared for, well-cared for life. I also do a lot of work with the Rotary Club of Barbados. So I'm a member of the Rotary Club of Barbados. And they do some amazing initiatives. So, for example, Schoolhouse for Special Needs Children, that's in Britain's Hill, and that's been a massive project. And also one that we are looking at now, which will be a future project, and that is putting water tanks in the rural schools of Barbados. So as you probably noticed, we do have a water scarcity problem here in Barbados, especially during this time of year. And so by providing uh, these water tanks, we're able to call it store and supply water to the school so that they do not have the uh, negative impacts of school closure. So some students still need to come to school even during these COVID times because they don't have facilities at home for remote learning. In addition to that, you know, they're when you don't have running water, potable water, you've got an issue with sanitation as well. So you want to make sure that we manage that well, especially from a COVID perspective. And that's a critical piece. So uh, lots on the go, lots of really great initiatives and projects. Gosh, Barbara, I'm, I'm very impressed by the, the the amount that you get involved in, actually. So I'm sure you're a very busy woman, which makes this uh, even more appreciated in terms of your time today. So see, in terms of getting into that, that that type of charity work, I'm sure there'll be kind of people who are always kind of wondering how they can kind of contribute. Like, how do how did you start getting involved in the charity side of things? It's going back to uh, my comment at the beginning. It's all about giving back. It's all about making a difference in the world. And again, that's very much a Barbadian, call it ethic, if you would. So in the majority of our events up in Canada, 
they usually, at the end of the day, if you've sold tickets or whatever, the funds are accumulated and then will go to support charitable objectives. So there's always an emphasis on giving back and making a difference. So I basically grew up with that. Right. Um, you know, so it's part of, as I said, our national consciousness, so to speak. It's that desire to help, desire to make a difference in sure. whatever way that we can. And it sounds like you have been involved in quite a variety of charity work as well. Is there anything that you haven't yet done in relation to your kind of ambitions of the charity work uh, that you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to kind of achieve or, do, you know, is, yeah, is there anything that's eluded you to date that you would like to do something about? I would say there's an area in the future that I would like to get much more involved in and that, the, you know, I'm sure the initiative will present itself in due course. And that is, you know, thinking in terms of the theme of the context around International Women's Day, we are very much a matriarchal society here in Barbados. And so the woman is, you know, generally speaking, the head of the household. And that role is, as we all know, is very impactful in terms of raising children, you know, helping, you know, create future citizens for the country. So being able to support programs that help young girls think about the future for themselves in terms of, you know, what's happening on a social level, spiritual level, emotional level, how can they embrace what their talents are in terms of really achieving their full potential? Because at the end of the day, they will have a tremendous impact on other youth, whether or not they are actually having children themselves and raising children and influencing them, or whether as an aunt, they're able to influence as well, or even adopt. But the role of the woman is very strong and very powerful here in the Caribbean. And I would like to see programs potentially through school or whatever other type of avenue that really help develop that sense of personal responsibility. How do you achieve your potential in the best possible way? That's excellent, actually, and a really good um, segment into my last question. So given this has been International Women's Week, uh, the theme this year is Choose to Challenge. And I'm just wondering if you've got any words of advice for girls or women out there around that theme. A, a couple of things. Some people in life, yes, things just seem to fall into their hands, into their plates, into their laps. But for the majority, it really is focus on the discipline of really, you know, your maths and your English, hard work, commitment, but really look to what is your talent and your potential and how can you develop that? And I'd like to make a special call out to a young lady, Maria Marshall, who is our local Greta Thunberg, so to speak. And she has this beautiful program on little thoughts on big matters. And she's 11 years old when she was at primary school in Blackman and Gala. She's now at Harrison College. She had put together this small video and it won an award. And so she'd been interviewed internationally, but it was all around observing something that was happening, somebody throwing trash, garbage out of a, a van, and then taking that as an idea and saying, what is my role and my responsibility in terms of the environment and how I can give back to the country? And so I would say it's that. What are you seeing around you? This is all our country. How can we all make a difference in whatever small a way as possible, but also make a difference by developing our potential and let that be, call it, let that, that be the mission to give back. It really comes back to do not let your circumstances define you. 
because you have an opportunity, especially here in Barbados. And of course, you know, in the UK and Canada, the US, other parts of the world, to take what life has offered you and to really try and transform that into something else. So do not let that, let your circumstances dictate. Look from within, what is your opportunity to make a difference? There was one little line that I really like, and it actually is in our book, Beyond Rum and Saltfish, but it's a really, it's a really good one. So this is now going back to our, our father of independence, so those days, Errol Walton Barrow. And there was a comment made by the Secretary General, His Excellency Kofi Annan, and he said, Barbados punches beyond its weight. This little country punches beyond its weight. And so when we think about some of the themes that we've talked about here today, and looking at one's circumstances, and to be able to transform that into something else, looking at what you have available to you and really focusing and making sure that you can make a difference. That takes that statement on the world stage and brings it right home into, you know, one's daily life and how one makes a difference in one's family, one's community, one's nation and beyond. Outstanding women who have made a difference for me, my headmistress, Dame Elsie Payne at Queen's College here in Barbados. She was a first in a number of areas. So she was the first female Barbadian scholar and also the first, the term is indigenous, so native to Barbados, female as well, principal headmistress of a school. Wow. Uh, so the number of firsts and absolutely beloved. So she was headmistress at Queen's College from, I think it was 1970 till around 1990. And then Queen's College moved up to its uh, current location, but an outstanding woman. Uh, brilliant, but compassionate, very compassionate. A woman of high standards and a big heart but a lovely lady. So she made an outstanding impact on me, impression on me. Life in Barbados, a year on a paradise island. Sherry Jones, writer, lawyer, and mum of four. Her debut novel is entitled How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House and is Set Here in Barbados. So you are a writer, a lawyer and a mum of four, which all seem like huge jobs in themselves. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could tell us a little bit about, about yourself growing up here in Barbados and life right now. Okay, so I am born and bred in Barbados, spent most of my life here. I first sort of lived outside of Barbados when I was studying for my legal education certificate. And then also when I pursued some studies and lived for a while in the UK. And like you said, yes, I am mom of four wonderful children, a lawyer, a creative person. I love photography. I, of course, love writing. Writing is my absolute passion. I've been doing it since I can remember. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. I love to laugh. I love to dance. You know, people close to me would probably say, I'm the slightly eccentric friend and people not that close to me would probably think I'm a little introverted. So <laughs> that's a little bit about me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Interesting. So it sounds like, well, we'll get on to the right in a second, but obviously mm -hmm. you had to study for quite a long time to become a lawyer. Yes. So was yes. that also, where did that come from? You know, what right. was your motivations around that? 
Well, I think in Barbados at the time that I graduated from secondary school, that was the path for good art students. It was, it never occurred to me that I could just do English literature, study English literature for its own sake. So it was kind of like, well, I'm good at English literature and language and I'm a good debater. You know, I was president of the debating society at school. And so it was, well, you know, this is almost a natural progression for me. And that certainly was the way I think I was guided. And therefore that's, that's how I became a lawyer. I did my A-levels and I applied to Cave Hill here and started studying. What was interesting to me, however, is that it was at Cave Hill while doing my bachelor's degree that I joined the Creative Writing Society and this whole world of writing as a vocation and, you know, writing as a serious endeavor and trying to perfect your craft, just kind of, it just opened up for me. And there were like-minded people who felt the same way as I did about reading and writing. So I think I kind of did the two things in parallel for a little while. I, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other night and she was reminding me about one night we had a finals exam for law and everybody was kind of like cramming the last bit of information they could get, the cases and the names and so on. And I was reading a novel and she reminded me about that. And, you know, she came outside and said, you know, you're, you've got final exams and you're reading a novel. I was like, yeah, it's really good. But yeah, so I did study for five years and then I did a master's in law as well. So just about six years and I've worked as a lawyer for all of my professional career now, but writing is my passion and I've been doing that the same time. And I'd like to think just as hard or harder. Wow. So you're still <laughs> a lawyer at the moment. You're still a practicing lawyer. Yes. I'm actually not in private practice. I work for a regulator, a local regulator in house. Wow. God, so that, that's, that, that's quite a big job then. So you're still doing the yeah. writing as well. So can mm -hmm. you tell me a bit about how that evolved over the time? Oh, wow. So writing for me when I was a lot younger was about trying to fill an exercise book cover to cover. At the beginning, in the beginning, I actually thought that I was a poet, but turns out I wasn't really that good at it. But I think that appreciation for economy in the use of language and distillation of thought, I think that followed me into my prose writing. So that tends to, to be my style. But I started out mostly writing short stories, especially, as I said, when I started out at Cave Hill. And I'd write short stories and try to get them published and get feedback and so on. And eventually that led to me publishing a collection of short stories, which, you know, it was very small press. It didn't do that well commercially, even though it got some good reviews. And, you know, I'm just always writing something. There's always a writing project going on. I would take off for various, you know, periods of time to pursue my writing. I'd take my entire holiday and go to an arts colony and just immerse myself in writing for like how many ever weeks I have for holiday. I've just taken time off and gone to pursue a master's. You know, writing is 
I think I've had some very understanding employers because they recognize eventually how passionate I am about writing and, you know, they do give me some leeway. So yes. So basically that's what I would have been doing over time. I would have been querying and so on. And then in 2018, I finished what's my debut novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, queried a few agents, queried three agents and had to respond and ended up with the fantastic agent I have now. And everything else, I swear to God, is a fairy tale. It's just a whirlwind. Things just happened so quickly after that. And, and yeah, and today the novel was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in the UK. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Congratulations. What a fantastic way to celebrate today. That is wonderful. Yes, I've been on Cloud Well done. Yes. Well done. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about the book then? Okay. So How the One Arms is the Sweet Sir House is a book about a woman called Lala, a young woman who lives on Baxter's Beach in Barbados with her husband, Aiden, who is a criminal, essentially. He does a number of illegal activities for a living. And Lala is a hair braider on the beach. And we meet her at the beginning of the novel on the night that she gives birth to their first child. Now, on that same night, there is a robbery at a mansion on the beach and a wealthy tourist is murdered. And how the one-armed sister sweeps her house is really about how those two events are connected. And it takes place over one summer in 1984 and along the way it explores Lala's evolution as a woman her eventual escape from the circumstances in which she finds herself when we meet her and it also explores themes of race class color poverty violence and especially domestic violence in Barbados in this picturesque setting of this beach with powdery pink sand and beautiful blue sunlit skies. So that's what the novel is about in a nutshell. Wow. And how much (laughs) of your experience of growing up in Barbados, your experience of uh, being a lawyer, etc., how much of that is reflected in the novel? Well, this is a thing. This novel was kind of like my love song to Barbados. I grew up You know, I have some really early memories. I was speaking to my parents just recently, and some of my memories actually go back to before I was two years old, believe it or not. And we actually lived in a house on this beach called Harry Smith Beach in St. Philip. It's not a particularly picturesque beach. It's not great for bathing. But I do remember sort of walking along the beach with my dad. And I remember just having a special relationship with the sea and that has continued for you know the rest of my life it's a little bit of a love-hate relationship but yeah so I certainly think that aspect of my life influenced the novel in a really big way in terms of my career what I would probably say is that my legal training helps me with getting to the bottom of the story so you know, I tend to start writing a story, I'll, I'll hear a character in my head, or I will see a scene being played out. 
And then there's this curiosity. I want to know like, what, well, why are you saying that? Why has this particular thing happened? And I start asking all these questions around what I'm hearing or seeing. And I think my legal training actually helps with that. Cause I've said quite a few times now that, you know, the characters that tend to talk to me tend not to tell the whole truth. So it helps to be able to ask some good questions <laughs> and find out what's really going on. Quite apart from that, I think my research skills definitely help with my writing for things that I don't know I haven't personally experienced. That helps. But yeah, so certainly my love affair with the beach. I mean, I sort of came into, you know, the beginning of knowledge of myself in the 80s. I would have been about, you know, 11 years old and so it just felt like it was a little bit of a of a of an ode to that period of time i remember the 80s fondly you know hands of dresses and walkmans and all these things that you know you don't really see now even though shoulder pads you know are making a bit of a comeback but <laughs> there are lots of other things that haven't quite made it back yet so it was really wonderful it was really enjoyable to be able to write about that and recreate that world you know and that period of time when I was kind of discovering who I was within the context of all these great things um happening in the 80s so yeah I think yeah. those are some of the influences that would have made their way into this book Amazing. And, you know, that's it. It's no kind of small feat there that you've described in terms of juggling the creative writing passion and your legal work, bringing up a family. Like what kept you driven around the, the writing to mm-hmm. you know, some, sometimes they, your true kind of passion <coughs> can be sidelined for yes. earning a living and yes. having a family and so on. Yeah. How did you manage, how did you manage to keep that going to get to just now being kind of nominated for all sorts of awards, which is amazing. Right. Well, for me, it was like, I, or it is like, I'm not right. So it's almost as if I have a story in my head and I'm not actually working on it over time, it's kind of like it nags me and it's actually difficult to focus on other things because I really want to get to what's in my head. So for me, it's like, I don't think I ever decided really to pursue writing or to keep going with writing. I think that's something that I'm compelled to do. It's just a part of me. I'll do it anyway. But in terms of pursuing publishing opportunities and trying to hone my craft and so on, it's just almost like there are these signposts that come up in life that say, you know, this way. And that happened with me a lot. There were Here's a time that I got really immersed in other things. I remember when my boys were quite young and there was a period of time where I was just totally focused on them. I was a new mom, you know, two boys, two young boys, and it was just all about them. And I would have these stories in my head that would just nag me and nag me and nag me. And eventually I had to realize that is a part of myself. That is something that I need to nurture and allow to grow just as I need to fulfill the other roles in my life. So I really felt over time, like I just didn't have a choice. It was just something that I needed to do. So, you know, I would, in my spare time, what, what people would consider spare time, I would be 
you know, reading something, writing something, looking at the Paris Review, looking for publishing opportunities, thinking about competitions. You know, I'd go away to the colony for a couple of weeks and just really soak in this very nurturing atmosphere and a community of like-minded people who understood this compulsion and who wanted to hear what I had to say and to share and to exchange and so on. So it was just something, it's a compulsion. It's something that I can't not do it. So I think, you know, it would be, it would probably be, I don't know. I just couldn't, I, I just can't imagine not doing it. So it wasn't something that I had to drive myself to do. It was just something that just, came naturally I would do things like even now if there's something that I'm writing on and I have a particularly rough week at work or I have you know stuff to do with the kids and so on during the day I will get up at three o'clock in the morning and not go back to sleep and just you know write and then get ready for work and the funny thing is when I do that I just feel so energized because I feel as if that's where I'm meant to be. It's like, it actually gives me some sort of boost. So yeah, I can't, it wasn't like a, a case of having to drag myself up or to, no, it was just, it was, it's like bliss. It's like, I just really love to be in that space. So, and I think, you know, people do say, don't they, if you, what your passion is, if you can do that as a job, yeah. exactly yeah. so I think that's what you're finding and, and likewise with me and the travel work that I do too so yeah. what's next for you hopefully winning this award but uh, <laughs> what else is that in the pipeline would be amazing that would be amazing so right now I am working on a collection of flash fiction and then I'm also working on a new novel and it's set on a cocoa plantation in Trinidad in the mid-19th century. And it's written from the perspective of an eight-year-old girl called Nib. And, you know, Nib is, there are lots of things happening on the plantation at this point in time. And it's just about how she negotiates that. I don't have the full story yet. So, I mean, that may sound a little funny, but sometimes for me, my stories, it's almost like somebody gives me a story, like, like a baby to foster and care for and nurture and apply the best of my skills and my abilities and my thinking to it and eventually to release it into the world. That's kind of how it is. So I've received this story and I'm still working on it. So I'm still kind of, you know, finding out all the little parts that need a little polishing and I'm still giving to the story and hoping that in the fullness of time, it will reveal itself. So it's a collection of flash fiction and a novel. That's what I'm working on right now. Fantastic. So watch this space. <laughs> and given yes. it is, so this week is International Women's Week. So we had International yes. Women's Day on Monday and this year's yes. theme is Choose to Challenge. I was just wondering if you've got any words of advice for girls or women out there around this year's mm -hmm. theme. Yes, definitely. I think it's important to challenge, to challenge some of the established notions about what women can and cannot do. You know, one of the questions that I get asked all the time is, you know, how do you balance it? How do you balance being a mom of four with a legal career and with your writing and with other things that I've pursued? 
And I just say, you know, I, the way that I balance it is that I no longer pursue balance. I know that I'll never be doing one particular, one of those things or never be executing one of those roles. Sorry. It's the other way. Actually, I know that I'll never be executing all of those roles perfectly at any point in time or even very well. And I think we need to challenge the notion that as women, we need to do everything well all the time, domestic, professional, you know, vocational, whatever it is there. I think some people started to think over time that, you know, women in, in establishing that we are equal and just as capable and deserving of equal pay and an equal treatment that we should do all, perform all aspects of our roles equally well at all times. And I've never been able to do that. So I think that's one of the things we need to challenge. Any of those functions is a full-time job. So <laughs> absolutely, which is what I said at the start. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anybody, kudos to anybody who manages to do all three or four full-time roles well all the time. I am not superwoman and I choose to challenge that notion. I'm a human being trying to fully realize my potential and myself. And sometimes that means that some things are going to be done less well, and that's okay. So that's one of the things that I'd say. And that's really interesting because you talked earlier about, you know, taking time out to go and do your writing. And, yes. you know, no doubt there'll be different priorities at different stages, depending on the age of yes. your children and so on. Yes. That, that, that's a great perspective actually have. Because yes. uh, I do think there's pressure on to yeah, be yes. good at everything all to the time. To be good so. at everything. When I went to a fellowship in Vermont for my writing and I was seven months pregnant at the time. It was March. Outside was just really icy and you know, <laughs> and I remember when I went into the, the this particular group of writers, it was, oh my goodness, you know, she's pregnant and whatever. And they were very welcoming and very warm. I think it's in acknowledging that we can do anything we put our minds to. I think we need to accept that we don't always need to be 200% on everything that we choose to do at the same point in time. That's just a recipe for burnout. We're human. So, and we're entitled to be human. Life in Barbados. Money Garcher, a successful competitive show jumper, Barbados Equestrian Association president, and one of the founders of the Humane Organization for the Relief of Suffering Equines Horse. I have been doing a bit of research and a number of people have mentioned you and it seems like you've had a very successful equestrian career. Is that what you, is that how you would describe it? Is that, is that the right terminology I'm using? Yes, yes, yeah, de definitely. Um, Excellent. Yeah, so how did it all start out? It started out actually on a trip to Northern Ireland of all places. No. Yes, absolutely. I had never uh, even really been around horses, maybe seen them for pony rides or something at a fair, but I went to visit some family that we had in Northern Ireland and they had a farm and we went out to the farm and we just had a, a really great day there as kids and they had a pony and I got on the pony and that was the end. I and my family has never had riders in it. So there's no equestrian background that my dad rode or my mom rode or my aunt rode or nobody rode. 
So that's what makes me a firm believer that equestrian sport is in your soul. It's a part of who you are. It is not, it's not a hobby. And anybody that thinks it's a hobby isn't really passionate or really into it. So, so that, I, that, start, I started out at uh, seven and I came back, I pestered the heck out of my mom until she got me enrolled in a writing school. And, and that's basically how it all, how it all started. So that's fascinating because Barbados, as far as I can tell, is quite big in terms of kind of equestrian activity, but it took you to go to Ireland. So I moved here from Belfast to Barbados in December. (laughs) And this is great to hear that you got your inspiration when you were in Ireland. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it was really, it was really something. And I just, I got very involved in, in show jumping. My dad got me a pony, really wicked thing that used to throw me off and just bolt for home and all the things that you see on the little videos that make you laugh. It's not so funny when you're going through it, but <laughs> it's funny. It's funny to look. And I think it did make me a stronger writer and certainly has helped me to appreciate the nicer horses I am I'm now lucky enough to own and to ride. So it was I started out in show jumping and did quite a lot until in terms of what we can do here locally, I probably jumped up to Back then it was in feet. So I'm going to say feet, which was like three foot nine and uh, won, won quite a few classes here. And I loved it, but I went away and I couldn't, I couldn't afford to do it and couldn't really find anywhere that was easily accessible when I went to school in, in England to do my A-levels. So that put it on pause, but I did have some very good friends, again, in Ireland, but in Southern Ireland, that said to my dad, instead of her hanging out over there, why don't you send her across to Ireland and she can enjoy her midterm breaks over here. And he actually leased an amazing horse for me. It was such a kind thing to do. He completely found clothes for me to wear and kitted me out and put me on this very brave horse that could have gone to war, I think. But then Equestrian wow. was off my radar for a few years. I didn't have a horse anymore at that time and it just faded away a little bit into the background and then I went to university and still didn't really do any riding maybe sat on a friend's horse once in a while for a little a pleasure but nothing no competition but I picked it back up when I got I got here because my dad quite late in his 40s decided to take up playing polo and he loved it. Yeah. So that's how I actually got back into equestrian sport was joining the Barbados Polo Club. Fantastic. And what were some of the highlights of your career to date? I think there's been a lot. I'll start out by saying that there's nothing that could ever compare to recently. I won, I was on the captain, the eventing team in Barbados, and we won the bronze medal at the Central American and Caribbean Games which was incredible and made even more incredible by the fact that we were all women. There are not a lot of teams that, in fact, I don't think there were any teams that were all women. We were the only all-female team coming from a really small country that had only started eventing as a discipline a year and a half before the games. So it was quite a feat. And the third, and one of, one of the three ladies on the team is actually my daughter, Zoe Ann. And... I've spent a lot of time and invested a lot of energy into, she's very passionate, but in helping her come up, come up through the ranks. So to, to win a medal for Barbados, which is the first equestrian medal 
ever won to do it as the captain of the team with my daughter beside me. And I managed to place fifth individually as well. There's nothing that compares to that. There've been things along the way, but that is, that's a tough one for now to talk. I hope there are better ones, better stories to tell down the road. But for right now, that's number one for sure. Wow. And so are you still active? Are you still competing? Very much so. I actually went on, it was a big step. I qualified a spot to the Pan American Games, but I had to qualify. I had to then get my MER, which is you have to get a required score to basically prove you're proficient another level up. So that was then three star. And it was all a bit of a rush. And my horse, while she's quite experienced for the CAC Games, she and I were doing a bit of learning together for the Pan American Games. So we didn't qualify. And that's not a bad thing because it's a, it's a big step up and it's better to take more time and be safe about it. In eventing, it, there is no sport like it. Like I said, I played polo. A polo is high adrenaline. But I would tell any polo player anytime that you will never be going cross country. You just won't. The fact that you're galloping flat out at big solid fences and you've got to time it and you know what happens if you don't time it it's there that's definitely a massive adrenaline rush so it's yeah it's been incredible and my horse remained remains in the u.s and of course i haven't been able to travel either because of this pandemic but my goal is to be back up in the u.s competing by the end of may and resume working towards certainly the Central American and Caribbean games again, but also working on trying to just climb the levels a bit earlier so that I am prepared to go to the Pan American games with the final and very lofty goal of the Paris 2024 Olympics. Oh, wow. And I'm sure, I suppose that's been the challenge, hasn't it, the last number of years in terms of athletes, is yes. that the run-up of these couple of years to the Olympics is is a key time. So if you haven't been able to prepare, it's just not, it's not possible to get there in your yes. sport. Yeah, so we'll see. It, it's all a little bit up in the air. And just like all the other, just like the Olympic Games and several other events in the world, a lot's been cancelled. So any we know anything can happen, but all we can do is is dream and hope and prepare. And so that's what I'm doing. And I do hope that we, I hope we get another team to the CAC games. Uh, I think we could do very well again. Fantastic. Now you mentioned there about the adrenaline rush in terms of the cross country. And at the beginning, you mentioned about it being in your soul. So what is it? What, what, what's the driver? What's the passion? What is it that keeps you so uh, involved in show jumping? I think that horses in general are just a part of who I am. And I would, I think I'll always have horses. I'm also a very driven and very competitive person. So I don't do things generally in half measures. So I think when you combine those two things and you have an absolute and total love for horses and animals in general, but horses, I think have a very special place in my heart. And then you put someone that's competitive and likes to, to take some risks. It pulls you there. You get pulled very easily into the more adrenaline based sports. So those for me, from as far as I'm concerned, of course, that goes hand in hand with danger and possibility of accidents would be polo 
eventing and racing, whether it be flat racing or more and more so jump racing. It's a, a very, it's a really good fit because I, I get to be very competitive and I get to spend time with my favorite animal. Amazing. And so. to be that successful, I would imagine there have been women well, people who've inspired you along the way. Have there been any women in particular that's helped you grow and develop into a leader within your field? Yeah, I think definitely. I would like to say that I think my first role model would have been my my first writing teacher, Jean Ray here locally. She was tough as nails. She is tough as nails. And uh, if you weren't doing something right on the back of the horse, you knew about it in no uncertain terms. But she really made you push for excellence. And I think that that was great not to have someone telling you, oh, oh, that's great. That's lovely when it's really not lovely. So I think that was, I think she was instrumental. Lucinda Green, who is just a name that I think anybody that knows anything about eventing would look up to. She's just a legend and she shattered the the mold in so many ways for women in our sport, for the sport in general. She's just an, an incredible athlete. I got to meet her actually when I went horse shopping for my own horse. So that was quite neat. And she's got an amazing daughter and it was quite good to, to meet them. And uh, I think in, pre- in terms of present day, I would say, I would say that there's a young upcoming writer who's very successful in the U.S., Liz Halliday Sharp. And I was lucky enough again to stable my horse at her barn while we were all preparing as a team to go to the CAC Games. So I got to see firsthand what goes into those the, the top-level athletes. She's knocking on the door for the Olympics and you know, the World Equestrian Games. She's that, she's that good. And she's a great person and she's so dedicated and extremely hardworking and an absolute perfectionist. I think she really, she really inspires me. And is it a, an area that is dominated by males or is there a bit of an equal, equal involvement of males and females? No, I think it's more, uh, the higher up the levels you go, I think there's definitely more men involved than women. I'm not sure what the split is lower Mm -hmm. down in Barbados on the other hand it's quite an equestrian sport here is definitely a huge passion and development of equestrian sport here is a huge passion of mine I'm actually the president of the equestrian federation and so with that that hat on we have a very enthusiastic group of of writers and athletes here very dedicated executive board that does a lot of initiatives in education and bringing clinicians in and finding funding for various programs to keep the sport going, trying to find fun, interesting things for the younger generation to do to try to keep them engaged. But they're all, I think we have one, one male member at present. I'd have to just double check that, but it's almost all women. So there are a lot of women that do the sport, but generally as you really go up the levels, more men than women. Sure. Wow. So I'm sure you're an inspiration to those out there who are looking to climb the ladder in terms of the the sport itself. That's fantastic. Now, I'm also aware that you do a lot of charity work and I think you are involved with the Humane Organization for the Relief of Suffering Equines. We've got it right and shortened to horse, which is very apt for what we're talking about. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I'd love to. 
I've always rescued animals my entire life. Anything that I found along the way, whether it be a cow or a sheep or a dog or a cat or a horse, I, from the time I can remember. So animal welfare has always been very big on my radar. And I just felt that I knew a lot of people that loved horses and were passionate about them and would like to see uh, a charity that was dedicated to to horse welfare. And that's really how it started. I just always believe if you can help and if you can give back, you should. So that's how that got started. And with charity has a lot of objectives. The primary objective is obviously securing on, and maintaining horse welfare. So that's been a job. Most of the so casualties that we see come as a result of horses that are retired from the racetrack, from the racing industry, and are not, not given to people who can afford to look after them. So that takes up the majority of our resources. So we have two facilities. We have a facility in the center of the island in St. Thomas, and that's purely a rescue and rehabilitation center. So they'll come to us, they'll be evaluated, and we'll help them to the best of our ability. And if they can be brought back into work and rehomed, we rehome them. But the rehoming process is, is very stringent. As you can imagine we're not going to go to all that trouble to bring them in to then put them back into the wrong hands. So it's very stringent. The other aspect is that some of them aren't. They're either mentally destroyed or they've got a physical ailment that they can never recover from. So those spend their time wandering around in our pastures. And obviously we're limited in space. So as much as I would love to be able to take them all in, it's not always possible, but we do our best. And we have saved a number of horses over the years. What we managed to do, I know the Brewster family very well here, who the Maria Holder family, they are, they've done a lot of charity work in Barbados. They're an absolutely amazing family and very passionate about horses. And they, they met me from early and they were supportive in various ways. And they came to me one day and they said, you know, we would like to do something a little bit more active with the horses to, to help children. And we'd like to start a program out where maybe we can train people for to become jockeys and maybe we can work with children after school that don't wouldn't normally have the resources to be able to afford to ride. And maybe we could even encompass helping special needs children as well. And I said, we're in luck because at my little facility in St. Thomas, we're already training jockeys and we already work with the learning center and help special needs children twice a week. But we have outgrown that rapidly and there's no all surface arena. So when it pours with rain, it's a quagmire and there's nothing we can do. And the kids are very disappointed. So that program through them took on an entire life of its own. And they have an incredible facility in the South of the Island called Winterbottom. And they said to me, okay, you tell us what you want. You tell us what your ideal program involves and let's see if we can make it happen. And they did. So we have rescued horses, rehabilitated them, and now those horses feed into our working programs at the Winterbottom Farm, where they work right now with, we only have the jockey program and the special needs program working, but I can't even contemplate an after-school program because 
of the response we have to the other two programs. I just, I already have 15 horses that are in work in those programs and they are oversubscribed. We, for the jockey school, we have, we have two equisizers they're called, which are make mock race horses that the kids can get on and learn proper technique for galloping. So we don't run the legs off the horses, but we very often have 50 children a day. And it's a big, it's a big program. So we've got Robert Pierce who runs it for me and does an excellent job keeping everything going on a day-to-day basis. Cause I don't do that. I more fundraise and try to keep everything, everything going. And he's got a great team that help him. So that has turned into more than anything I ever thought that charity could have turned into. Fantastic. That's really impressive. And it sounds, it sounds like what you do, there's a lot of demand for. So I don't think you'll be going anywhere anytime soon <laughs> in relation no. to the offerings. I'm sure they'll increase over time. So I suppose given this week has been uh, International Women's Week, which is uh, part of today's podcast episode, and you have done a lot within your career and within the charity work you do as well. So I was just wondering if you've got any advice for girls and women who aspire to be leaders within their fields and may not have the confidence to put themselves out there? I think it's critical for girls and young ladies, young women to know that they can achieve absolutely anything that they put their mind to. And that's not just words. You have to want it really badly. You have to be prepared to sacrifice a lot for it. You've got to have, you've got to build yourself a good plan and seek out people that could help you build that good plan. And you can get there. You have to, you've got to believe in yourself. I, I was blessed in that I've had a great support network and a, a dad that told me basically there was nothing that I couldn't do. So I, I grew up with that, but I know a lot of people may not have that. So try to su- support yourself and surround yourself with positive role models and positive people. And, and don't give up. I've been trying. I didn't get here easily. I did not get here easily. I, yes, I've had a lot of help and I've had a lot of amazing opportunities that I'm very grateful for, but I've been trying to do this. I want, I wanted to ride at this level since I was probably seven and I'm now, I'm now 47. So it's taken a long time to get here. I've, I've lost horses along the way to injuries. I've broken my heart. I've had to part company with trainers and not known where I was going next because you're very limited for resources on a small island. And I've always had to bring trainers in to basically live here and work with me. I've taken no small amount of, of effort, but it is possible. It is possible to, to achieve what you want, but you've just got to set your eye on it and refuse to let it go. Just don't give up. There is just a lot of people who think, look at success and don't realize how hard it is to get there. So don't take anything for granted and just push through. Life in Barbados. A year on a paradise island. If you've been enjoying Life in Barbados, you're going to want to check out my other show, The Bucket List. Each episode, I chat with locals, guides, and even some people I met along the way on various dream trips. 
experience safari in Tanzania, road trips across the US and hiking across Australia's national parks, just to mention a few of the episodes. Go to otherworldtravel.com forward slash podcast. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.